Hey, what's happening? This is Wendell Wallace of Wendell's World of Sports. Before I begin my podcast, let me give a shout out. Let me give a special dedication to my main man, Jay Fenning. That's J-H-A-E-P-F-E-N-N-I-N-G. He does the Hard Parking Podcast. It's the, I guess you can say it's the everyday life of non-automotive automotive uh, fanatics who want to sit there, listen to some great podcasts, listen to some great automotive talk, talk about what's going on in the world today. Jay brings on some amazing guests. I love his takes. I love his thoughts and opinions about what's going on in the world today, whether we're speaking about social media in 2020, whether we're speaking about certain sites, whether we're speaking about anything pertaining to the world and what's going on. And then he brings on some fabulous guests to talk about everything which is going on in the automotive industry. The last episode was talking about the fact that, you know what, when you're going on these long cross-country drives, man, it's always good to be prepared just in case, especially if you're living in the places where there could be some inclement weather. It's really a fantastic podcast. I enjoy listening to it. You can listen to it every week. Jay Fenning, it's a hard parking podcast. Listen to it. It's absolutely fantastic. Welcome to Wendell's World in Sports. Let's be great. Let's be great. An entertaining and provocative look into the world of sports and beyond. Play our game. All right. Play, Play hard, but stay poised. Please feel free to go over to Apple iTunes and rate and review. Your feedback is welcome. Go rock this thing, huh? Love you, man. Go get it. And now, the host of the program from the Washington, D.C. metropolitan area, Wendell Wallace. What's happening? K Possibly Amigos, me, I'm away. Wendell Wallace, Wendell's World in Sports. Bonjour, bonsoir, Monsieur Mademoiselle. Je m'appelle Wendell Wallace. Wendell's World in Sports. So glad that you could be with us. A lot of things to talk about today in the world of sports. Konishiwa. Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Wassalamu alaikum, my brothers. Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us, my brothers and sisters. And shalom. What's happening? What's going on? Hope everything is good. Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. A lot of things to discuss and get down on today in the world of sports. Mainly going to be keeping it NFL-centric. I have another podcast coming up in a couple of days where I'm going to be discussing the NBA playoffs along with the upcoming week three of the NFL season. Just finished watching the Denver Nuggets beat the Los Angeles Lakers to close the gap in the Western Conference Finals to two games to one. The Eastern Conference Finals between the Boston Celtics and the Miami Heat will be taking place tomorrow. I'm recording this on a Wednesday night, so whenever you're listening to this, be forewarned that in the next 48 to 72 hours, I will be putting out something discussing everything, what's going down in the NBA playoffs, but as of this podcast, I'm going to be concentrating mainly on week two of the NFL. So, man, let's just get into it. When we think about what the theme of the week was, the weekend, the Sunday, Monday of the NFL, it had to be injuries, 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 particularly the San Francisco 49ers. Man, they're in some real trouble after their 31-13 victory over the winless New York Jets. The 49ers lost pass rusher Nick Bosa and Solomon Thomas. Uh, Bosa was grabbing his left knee as he was carted off the field, as was Thomas. Now, Monday confirmed that Bosa tore his ACL and will miss the rest of the season. Thomas also tore his ACL 
In fact, he tore it two plays after Bosa went ahead and got injured. So this is a devastating injury for the 49ers. It's a devastating injury, especially if you're speaking about Solomon Thomas, because this guy is unsigned for the 2021 season. He's scheduled to become a free agent in March after the 49ers declined a fifth-year option, mainly because the top five draft pick in the 2017 draft has made 30 starts, 95 tackles, six sacks, and four seasons, which doesn't lend to a team giving him a monster contract extension. So if you take a look from a season to a season, when you're talking about the San Francisco 49ers, the strength of the 49ers, one of the main reasons why they got to the Super Bowl last season, one of the main reasons why they were one of the elite teams was because of a fantastic front four. Defensive end D. Ford, who was a pregame inactive uh, decision, because of what they call the neck, in, neck injury. He didn't play. But, you know, when you're speaking about last season, when you had Nick Bosa leading the defense with quarter, 25 quarterback hits, finishing second to Eric Armstead with nine, uh, nine sacks, DeForest Buckner, D4 combining for 14 sacks. I mean, again, this was the main reason why the San Francisco 49ers were able to do what they do. And this past offseason, the 49ers traded Buckner to the Indianapolis Colts in exchange for their first-round draft pick in the 2020 NFL Draft. The reason why they did that is because, you know, when you saw that the Colts signed Buckner to a four-year, $84 million contract extension, making him the highest-paid defensive tackle right behind Aaron Donald, you take a look then from the San Francisco 49ers uh, point of view, and you said, well, we have Bosa's that's going to be coming up. You know, he's going to be playing on his rookie contract for the next couple of years, but when he does come up for a contract extension. This was the 49ers thinking and letting Buckner go in terms of a trade and not paying him is because if you think about it in the offseason, if Bosa continued to progress as he was progressing, he's going to break the bank for defensive, not only defensive ends, but defensive players in the NFL. And then you speak about the um, agreement to uh, pay defensive lineman Eric Armstead. So basically, you really didn't have enough money to pay for all four of those guys. And if you're going to lose uh, Buckner, who was going to be a free agent the next season, you might as well get something for him. So they traded him, got a first-round pick for it to uh, go ahead and continue to build on their foundation uh, that was set by the coaching of Kyle Shanahan and the general managing of John Lynch. So basically, it was a situation where, you know, they had to choose between Eric Armstead and DeForest Buckner. So I guess they said, you know what, we're just going to have to go ahead and choose between one of the two. And they chose Armstead. And Buckner so far has been really good for the Baltimore, for the um, uh, Indianapolis Colts. But, you know, again, you're speaking about the devastation from the defensive uh, line concerning the San Francisco 49ers. Man, this was a team that was already coming off a 24-20 loss to the uh, Arizona Cardinals in week one. This was a defense that allowed 180 yards rushing from the Cardinals, mainly from the quarterback position, but still 180 yards rushing, five yards per rush. The Cardinals had, uh, made half of their 14 third down attempts. They only generated two sacks on Kyler Murray. So, man, it was a situation where going up against the Jets, I mean, you were looking for something in terms of a signature victory right off the bat in the second week to start things going. So not only do they lose Bosa, not only do they lose Thomas for the year, then against the Jets, Jimmy G. Garoppolo suffered a high ankle sprain. He didn't play in the second half. Nick Mullins was under center for the rest of the game. And according to Shanahan, Garoppolo is day-to-day. Now, this type of injury usually requires at least a month to recover, but Shanahan was talking about, well, 
you know, the severity is not really that bad, and Garoppolo's going to have a chance to play on Sunday against the New York Giants. I don't know so much so early in the season that you're going to go ahead and do that right now, but when you speak about the division that the 49ers are in, and you speak about the resurgence of the Los Angeles Rams, Sean McVay, the head coach, is doing an unbelievable job at a play-calling position. You take a look at the Seattle Seahawks, who are looking to be one of the better teams in the NFC. I mean, and the Arizona Cardinals are much improved. I mean, this might be a situation now, even though it's only two weeks into a 16-week season, 16-game season, where if Garoppolo is not going to be 100%, and we're speaking about him coming back from an injury that usually takes more than one week to recover from, this is going to be a lingering problem for the San Francisco 49er quarterback for the entire season. So we'll see what happens. So you have Jimmy G., High ankle sprain. You have the defensive lineman, Thomas and Bosa, out for the year. Then, according to Adam Schefter of ESPN, the running backs, Tevin Coleman, is expected to miss multiple weeks because of a sprained knee. And running back, Rasheem Mostert, also suffered a sprained MCL and is most likely going to miss the uh, game against the Giants. So, goodness gracious, man, what the fuck is going on with the San Francisco 49ers? So, with Coleman and Mostert both expected to be out next week against the Giants, who suffered their catastrophic injury with Saquon Barkley tearing his ACL. But next week against the Giants, the starting running backs for the 49ers are going to be Jarek McKinnon and Jeff Wilson Jr. So they're going to have to be handling the running back duties. So this is the 49er team, man, that more than ever has just been decimated by injuries. Richard Sherman's out, Debo Samuel's out, George Kittle remains to be out. I mean, this ain't the Philadelphia Eagles situation where they can play in the division where seven, eight, nine wins might get you the uh, division title. I mean, this is a situation where the 49ers are playing in a heavily competitive conference. So, again, next weekend, they're going to be staying, I guess, in West Virginia. I mean, they're not going to make that trip after playing the Jets, playing the Giants in the same, same stadium that the Jets play in. So, they're not going to, speaking of the 49ers, fly cross-country back to the uh, Bay Area and then fly back out again. So they're going to be staying the week in West Virginia. I believe they said that Kittle, the wide, the uh, uh, tight end, is already out there. So there's a possibility that he might give it a go if his injury is, is all right. But, uh, you know, they, they might be, they might be speaking of the um, 49ers, they might be a little bit spoof to play in that same stadium with, after all of those injuries. In fact, the playing surface at MetLife Stadium was so problematic for San Francisco general manager John Lynch, he reached out to the NFL head of football operations, Troy Vincent, to try to get some you know, reassurances from the team. And what sources told ESPN Chris Mortensen was the field has undergone about 20 inspections since it was installed in June. The final expense, uh, inspection was on um, September 12th, certified it as compliant with mandated policies for artificial turf. And the Jets certified it again that Thursday. And if you take a look, while the Jets had their injuries, nothing coming close to the amount of injuries and the devastation of those injuries. So I don't know if you can really blame the turf for everything that happened, especially when the opposition that you were playing against didn't suffer nearly the type of uh, casualties as far as injuries that the 49ers did. So... I don't know, man. Moving forward, I mean, what's going to happen to the what's going to happen to the defending NFC champions? This was a situation where I always said this before. In every NFL season, you always have these contenders. 
You always have these guys going into the season where this team should be a Super Bowl contender. This team should be one of the NFL elite. This team at least should be a division champion, those type of things. And one of those teams, sometimes two of those teams, are never going to live up to expectations. On the other end of the spectrum, you have a team where they're not supposed to be any good. They were a team that maybe won three, four, five games. They're supposed to be in a rebuilding stage. All of a sudden, they surprise. And all of a sudden, they're one of the teams that are going to be competing for championships. They're going to be the ones that are going to be competing for division titles, all those type of things. So maybe this year, when you take a look at the teams coming into the season that were supposed to be Super Bowl contenders like the Baltimore Ravens, like the Kansas City defending champions, like the New Orleans Saints, like the San Francisco 49ers. I mean, this is a situation where maybe because of these injuries, the 49ers are the team that's going to be finishing the season 7-9, and 6-10 and 10 possibly. Because if you take a look at the impact of Joey of uh, Nick Bosa being out, Joey Bosa, his brother, playing for the Chargers, he got paid. But Nick Bosa playing for the 49ers with him being out for the entire season, I mean, you take a look at that defense from San Francisco, they ranked 25th in points. Allow in Shanahan's first season, the year before that, uh, they drafted Bosa in 2018. And the 49ers dropped to 28th before drafting Nick Bosa. So he was really the linchpin of uh, what made the 49ers work. Yes, they picked up Richard Sherman. Yes, they drafted very well along the, along the defensive line. But everything really didn't come together until the impact of Nick Bosa was present on that team. So, I don't know, man. It'll be interesting. You take a look at the schedule for the San Francisco 49ers, man. They're, again, playing at the New York Jets. We don't know what their attitude, we don't know what their mindset is going to be going back to the scene of so many crimes concerning the injuries just a week before. Then after the Giants, they play at home against the Philadelphia Eagles. Then they're at home against the Miami Dolphins. Then they're at home against the LA Rams. So they might be able to correct some things in this three-game homestand before they head out on the road afterwards to play the New England Patriots. Then they're on the road against the Seattle Seahawks. Then a quick turnaround for a Thursday night game against the Green Bay Packers. And then it's on the road to the uh, New Orleans Saints. So I'm I'm taking a look at the season for the... San Francisco 49ers, man, hey, man, I understand that, you know, you're not supposed to be making any, you know, proclamations with written stone and all of those things two weeks into the season. We still don't know how this whole situation is going to play out, but we know for sure that they're going to be devastated along the defensive line because Nick Bosa isn't coming back. Two of their four defensive starters aren't coming back. We don't know what the status of Jimmy Garoppolo is going to be. Even if he does play, we don't know how close to 100%. We don't know how effective he's going to be. And if you take a look at the San Francisco offense and how it's so geared around the running game, and you're speaking about two of their starting running backs missing some time already this season, then you talk about their main offensive weapon from a passing perspective, George Kittle, he's going to be out, or he's nicked, or he's not close to being 85-90%. Jimmy G, it's time to step up, man. It's time to start earning that money that you made, because between the dates of October 25th through November 29th, that's going to be the most important part of their season, and those are the teams that I just mentioned in terms of who the 49ers are going to be playing during that time. The Giants, the Eagles, the Dolphins, the Rams. I mean, then you talk about, you know, the Rams, the Patriots, Seattle, Green Bay on a, on a short uh, short week, and then at uh, New Orleans. So it's going to be interesting to see what happens.
It's going to be interesting to see what Garoppolo is going to be all about because this guy was supposed to be the heir apparent to Tom Brady in New England. Remember all that consternation and uh, those discussions and opinions about Tom Brady somehow moved Jimmy Garoppolo out of town because of the threat of potentially having Garoppolo be the heir apparent to Tom Brady when it was time and Tom Brady's time wasn't just yet. So Belichick did him a solid by going ahead and training him. And we all thought, you know, what a great coup that was for the 49ers to get a guy who many people thought was ready to be one of the top 12, 15 quarterbacks in the league. Well, you know, so far, Garoppolo has relied mainly on his running game and his defense. Kind of like what Russell Wilson did the first couple of years of his career. Kind of like what Tom Brady did the first couple of years of his career. Kind of like what Ben Roethlisberger did with the Pittsburgh Steelers for the first couple of years of his career as a starting quarterback. So this is the time now when you take a look at situation where Garoppolo is going to have to take more responsibility of the offense. He's going to have to give more performances like he did last season against the uh, New Orleans Saints on the road where he was fantastic and not a situation where, I mean, what was it? In one of the playoff games, I don't know what was the... Uh, conference finals or the second round where he only threw the ball like five or six times or some nonsense like that because of the uh, running game being so potent. He's not going to have that ability right now. He's not going to have that threat right now. The offense is going to be centered around Garoppolo. The money that he's making, it shouldn't be that much of a transition. Again, with the loss of weapons, it's going to make it harder, but Garoppolo needs to get it done. So injuries, 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 injuries. But it's not just the San Francisco 49ers who are feeling the pain. As I say, it's not just the San Francisco 49ers who are feeling the pain on Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Man, other injuries or consequences from this past weekend in the NFL, the Saquon Barkley entry for the New York Giants. Damn, the MRI confirmed that he tore an ACL. He's going to undergo surgery. The team announced on Monday. Now, Barkley also partially tore his meniscus and a strained MCL, which won't require surgery, but he'll need at least two to four weeks to wait for the swelling and inflammation to go down before he can go ahead and have the ACL repaired. So he's going to be out for the season. Christian McCaffrey, the running back for the Carolina Panthers, he suffered a high ankle sprain against the Tampa uh, Tampa Bay Buccaneers and is expected to miss multiple weeks. This is what the Panthers announced on Monday. He didn't return after limping off the field after a seven-yard touchdown run with over 13 minutes remaining in the game. Drew Locke, the running the uh, quarterback for the Denver Broncos, he suffered a high ankle sprain on his right throwing shoulder on the sack in the first quarter on, of uh, Sunday's loss to the Pittsburgh Steelers. He's supposed to be out two to six weeks now. The organization went ahead and signed Blake Bortles to a one-year deal. One-year deal, uh, according to uh, the coach uh, Vic Fangio, uh, Colin Kaepernick bringing him him bringing him in was not discussed as a replacement for the time Denver needs a backup quarterback. All right. So you take a look. The Colts wide receiver, Paris Campbell, he was carted off the field in the first quarter of Indy's matchup with the Vikings. And according to Colts insider Jim Aleo, he reported that Campbell suffered an MCL injury. There's no 
chance that, uh, or there's a very low chance that Campbell's going to return this season. So with all of this stuff going down, with all of these injuries happen, happening, all of these injuries happening where folks are going to be out multiple weeks to the entire year on the second week of the season, the discussion rises to, well, can you attribute the no preseason games for the rise of the early injuries in, the, uh, in this season? I'm going to say this because it's easy to sit there and say, well, you know what, that's the reason why those guys play in the preseason, this, that, and the other. And look, there was some talk about the preseason being reduced to two games and then having 18 regular season games and a new collective bar- uh, bargaining agreement. I said that, you know what, if you're speaking about player safety, why in the hell are you going to do that? This might be a perfect example of why sixteen game, a regular 16-game season is just about enough for the NFL players. If you speak about the four preseason games, the first game, of course, as I mentioned before on my YouTube channel, which you can check out on YouTube, Wendell Wallace. Just type in Wendell Wallace, W-E-N-D-E-L-L, Wallace, W-A-L-L-A-C-E. Subscribe to... Uh, what I'm putting down on that. But, you know, with the four regular season games, the first game, the first preseason game, the starters only get one possession for the most part, and then they're done. Week four, the starters play one position, one possession, if not any, and then they're done. Week two and three are mainly the ones, especially if you're speaking about week three, where it's kind of like this is the closest that we'll get as far as the intensity and as far as, you know, the relevance of what a regular season game is. So even with the four regular or four preseason games, the fact that the starters are playing probably about one and a half games out of the four, I think is still important. But, you know, whether this led to the fact that there was no preseason games, whether this led to a rise in these catastrophic injuries, I can't buy that. I, I, I think that was a, a reason. I think that was a decent reason. But do I think this was the main reason why? No. Now, I understand, you know, when you have the spotlight on the discussion because of the players that were injured when you're speaking about Barkley and Bosa and Locke and Garoppolo and McCaffrey and all these guys that is going to lend to that type of discussion. But... If I remember last season, there were 17 ACL injuries in the preseason. And if you go back in time, at least as far as I've been watching NFL football or really focusing on NFL football, marquee players have always suffered major injuries in the preseason or early in the season every year. If you remember last season, what Ben Roethlisberger didn't even play a half of a, uh, what one or two games before he shut down his entire season because of a uh, elbow injury or because of an arm injury. If you remember back in 1999, Trent Green of then the St. Louis Rams, he was slated to be the starter, starter, but suffered a what kind of like a ooh, ugly looking season-ending knee injury in a preseason game on a hit by Rodney Harrison of the then San Diego Chargers. And I remember, you remember Dick Vermeil talking about we will rally around Kurt. He'll make it work. We'll make it work. Well, you know, tears of joy. That opened up the opportunity for some guy who was bagging groceries in Iowa named Kurt Warner to take over. And all he did was lead the Rams to a 13-3 and season and a 23-16 victory over the Tennessee Titans in Super Bowl 34, which meant the end of the career of Trent Green in St. Louis. But, you know, that was a situation where Trent Green blew out his knee on the first preseason game 
after he signed a big contract to be the starting quarterback for the St. Louis Rams. Basically, it was supposed to be a a uh, changer in terms of changing around the fortune of Dick Vermeil, who had had some bad seasons at the coach of the Rams, and he was he was on the hot seat. So when they brought in Green. It was a situation, this was supposed to be the guy that was going to have the best opportunity to save Vermeil's job. And that was one of the main reasons why everybody was so devastated. Because they thought when Green went down in the preseason, the preseason fucking games of all things, that uh, not only was it the end of the season, but also the end of the coaching career for the St. Louis Rams of Dick Vermeil. But again, then again, Warner came in and uh, basically, I don't know why Dick Vermeil's not in the Hall of Fame or shouldn't be considered more, but that was... One of the great turnarounds in NFL history from, you know, a nobody coming from nowhere to being the starter. And all we, we, we know the Kurt Warner story. So that was one example. 1991, you, you remember? Philadelphia Eagles quarterback Randall Cunningham, Randall Cunningham. Season ended in the what, first quarter of the first game. Remember he was tackled low. He was playing at Lambeau Field. He was tackled by Bryce Pop of the Packers towards ACL and his MCL first game of the season. He missed the entire season. Tom Brady missed almost all of the 2008 season because of an opening day injury in 2008 against the Kansas City defending champions of this year when his left knee was seriously injured midway through the first quarter on a hit by Chief Safety Brandon Pollard, Bernard Pollard. In fact, that's one of the reasons why you can't go low on a quarterback anymore because of what happened to uh, Tom Brady that year where he tore both his ACL and his MCL. Michael Vick suffered a fractured right tibia during a preseason game before the 2003 regular season against the Baltimore Ravens uh, playing at the uh, playing with the Atlanta Falcons played back there what, in the Georgia Dome. He missed the first 11 games of the regular season in 2003, making his debut in the week of, of uh, 13. So, I mean, these are all situations where you know there's a strong possibility that a marquee player, that a marquee name somewhere during the season, it just happens. It's happened to uh, Aaron Rodgers. It's happened to uh, most of the quarterbacks. It's happened to Carson Wentz multiple times. You know, a quarterback with the durability of someone like, say, a Dak Prescott, it's not really, uh, it's not really something that's uh, everyday occurrence. So, you know, just because it happened on this particular time, at this particular point of the season, coming off the 2020 that we've been having in sports in terms of the pandemic and everything being pushed back and games being delayed or not played and everything like that, I'm not going to say the Nick Bosa or the Solomon Thomas injury was due to the fact that they didn't play in any preseason games. The turf on MetLife was terrible, and those type of injuries happen. It happens... It could happen week one. It could happen week eight. It could happen in week six, 16. It could happen in the playoffs. I mean, hell, Teddy Bridgewater tore up his knee on a non-contact drill in practice when he was with the Minnesota Vikings. Deshaun Watson went the same way. He injured himself in practice. So, you know, these things, these things happen. And to put all of the blame on that because of no preseason games, I don't think that would be the correct uh, the correct judgment. Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us now. The pandemic, speaking about injuries. Oh, hi, Brandy Rhodes. Ooh, that's a good-looking woman. Man, focus, Wendell, focus. But uh, speaking about the pandemic playing a role in as far as these injuries, well, yeah, you also have to take into account that players had to self-quarantine themselves 
for months if you're speaking about where some of these players are going to be living during that time. If you're speaking about NFL players who lived in Southern California, I mean, it, it was for months they didn't have an opportunity to come out of their homes. If you're speaking about players who lived in the New York City area, it was months before they had the opportunity to come out of their homes. If you're speaking about players who lived in the Washington State area, it was months before they had the opportunity to come out of their homes. So because of that, because they had to adjust, they weren't and they, they weren't able to go ahead and get with their normal routine or have an off-season conditioning program or not have their trainers come over and work out or not be able to go down and work out at the facilities. Players didn't put on pads or have practices until the middle of August. All of those things played a factor. All of those things played a role, I think, and the reason why you're seeing a lot of these soft tissue injuries. But again, to blame all of that on this on the pandemic, to blame all of that on the fact that there was no preseason games? No, I don't think so. I don't. It, it, there's going to be plenty of times. There's going to be plenty of times moving on in this season. Lord, I knows. I hope it didn't happen. Lord knows. I hope it doesn't happen to a Russell Wilson. Lord knows. I hope it doesn't happen to a Lamar Jackson. Lord knows. I hope it doesn't happen to someone like a Patrick Mahomes or someone of that type of consequence, an Aaron Rodgers, or getting Ben Roethlisberger injured again. I hope all of these guys can stay healthy and getting ready, roaring to go for the entire season. But uh, these things happen. These things happen. Welcome to football. Welcome to NFL football. But I'm not blaming it solely, these injuries, on no preseason. And I'm not, playing, I'm not blaming it solely on the pandemic. Played a role? Yes. A starring role? No. Wendell's World in Sports. Now I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. Hello. Bonjour, Monsieur Mademoiselle. What is going on? Konnichiwa, my beautiful brothers and sisters. What is happening? Wendell's World in Sports, the podcast. Up here recording this on a Tuesday night after the Denver Nuggets beat the Los Angeles Lakers. Now, as I'm recording this um, podcast, which we put out Later on tonight, probably be published on Wednesday morning. I am watching a special AEW on uh, TNT. And I'm watching the beautiful Brandy Rhodes wrestle. Who, uh, for someone who really can't wrestle, is uh, pretty good. She ain't bad. The women wrestlers, the women performers of AEW, I would take the uh, WWE wrestlers when you have the absolutely gorgeous and beautiful Alexa Bliss. Oh! Jeez. Because I don't watch SmackDown anymore, I haven't really gotten back into it now since Roman Reigns has turned heel. He's turning heel. He's with Paul Heyman. The Rock came out recently and talked about it. It would be fun to uh, get into the ring with him again if there's going to be crowds in the stands for the next WrestleMania. 
I think that would be an awesome main event in terms of uh, The Rock getting in there with Roman Reigns. Or what would be interesting would be if Brock Lesnar came back. I don't know if he's ever going to. I don't know if he's going to sign a contract with the uh, WWE. I know if he does, he's going to be a part-time wrestler working with a big-time fat contract, which he's been doing for the last couple of years. By the time he signs, he's probably going to be around 43 years old. But what would be interesting would be a main event at WrestleMania if The Rock and Roman Reigns. I don't know get that out of the way before WrestleMania or whatever, what would be awesome would be, would be a face, would be a good guy, Brock Lesnar, with against uh, Roman Reigns, the heel Roman Reigns, with Paul Heyman, of all people, in his corner. Because if you think about it, Paul Heyman was always the advocate for Brock Lesnar. Now, to come back and have the tables turn, that would be interesting. That would be interesting. But yes, I'm right now taking a look at AEW, who... On a week-to-week basis, I uh, find more, uh, right now I just find more interesting. It has nothing to do with Drew McIntyre being the champ. It has nothing to do with uh, Randy Orton. It has nothing to do with uh, the hit, the hurts, the hurt business and all that kind of stuff. It's just, I don't know. I mean, I've always been a great fan of Les Champion, Chris Jericho, and some of these new faces that are on AEW. I know that, you know, you have, you know, uh, John Moxley being the, AWE champion. I know Brandy and Cody Rhodes are one of the people who put this thing together. I've always been a big uh, fan of Hangman Page and and Kenny Omega. In fact, Kenny Omega right now is probably my favorite worker going right now with all the work that he did in Japan. But uh, yeah, as of right now, I'm uh, I'm uh, interested more in what's going down with AEW more than I am with uh, WWE. But don't worry, Vince. I'll get back to you. I will definitely get back to you. Wendell's World in Sports. Wendell Wallace is my name. Talking sports, being entertaining, enthralling, thought-provoking is my game. Uh, The best games of the weekend so far. Seattle over New England from the past week, 35-30. Russell Wilson, damn, damn, damn. 21 of 28, 288 yards, five touchdowns to five different receivers. Look, it's only week two. I'm not going to go there. I'm not going to go with this discussion. I'm not going to have this discussion, but I'm going to start the discussion. Two games into the season, two games into the season, two games into the season, two weeks into the season. I get it. I understand it. The thoughts about, you know, who's going to be the NFL MVP and all this nonsense. Way, 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 way too early to talk about. But I will say this. After week two, After two strong performances, Russell Wilson is in the lead of building a legitimate chance so far through two games of winning the MVP award. He's completing 82.5% of his passes. He's averaging 305 yards per game. He's scoring four and a half times per game. Again, through two games, very small sample size. I know this. He has just one interception. That was a perfectly thrown ball that went right through the tight end. Greg Olson's hands on Sunday night. Return for a touchdown. That was cool, said Russ. We'll get him back. Don't worry about it. Sierra's my wife. I'm, I'm, I'm good. Look, when it comes, one of the reasons why I think as of right now, as of right now, as of right now, that I can talk about Russell Wilson. Oh, shit, this sounds so fucking stupid. Leading the pack for the MVP race after two weeks and two fucking games. It's because, like, any other award in any professional team sports here in this godforsaken country that I live in right now, it's always as much about the storyline along with the performance. 
it's happened that way. I mean, we're, I had the discussion just a tad, and I'll continue it a little bit later in depth when I you know, do my podcast in the next couple of days concerning more about the NBA, about you know, LeBron James being the MVP or LeBron James not being the MVP this season. Instead, it went to Giannis Adenokupo. And, you know, LeBron was pissed off, and he was upset about, you know, I can't believe I only got 13 or 16 first-place votes, and I don't understand what the MVP is all about and all of these other things. And, yes, it happened when Kobe Bryant was in the league. Yes, it's happening right now with LeBron James in the league. Yes, it happened when Michael Jordan was in the league. Yes, you can go ahead and you can make the argument that basically as many MVPs as those guys had won, and you could maybe add another three or four MVPs to their name because even though they might not have had the best season, they were clearly the best player in the game. I think Shaquille O'Neal could have had about three or four MVPs that, you know, they gave to Steve Nash a couple of times. LeBron could have won a couple of MVPs, which they gave to Stephen Curry, which they gave to Derrick Rose. Um, Kobe Bryant could have won a couple of MVPs, but they, you know, they gave one to Dirk. They gave one to uh, Steve Nash again. They could have gave they could have gave the MVP to Michael Jordan, but if you remember, there was one year that Charles Barkley won it when he came over from Philadelphia to Phoenix and had the career of all careers for him. They could have given it to Jordan when Carl Malone won it uh, with the Utah Jazz. It's just a matter of when you reach a level of consistent excellence, you just get bored. People just get bored. So yeah, LeBron could sit there. Could you make the argument for him? This season that, you know, he's the best player in the game. That if you were starting a basketball team for one season this season, what player would you pick? Of course, it would be LeBron James, especially if you're speaking about, you know, recent bias, recent viewing of how LeBron is playing. Even though not great, you might go with Anthony Davis. But if you're taking a look to choose between Giannis and LeBron based on what they've been doing in the playoffs, one is still in the playoffs, the other one is going home, that you might go with Giannis. But... You know, depending upon what your definition is of an MVP, you take a look at LeBron, been there, done that 17 years in the league, everything in terms of the, you know, greatness and everything that's already been documented, that's already been well known. You take a look at Giannis, you take a look at his backstory, you take a look at where he's playing, you take a look at the success of the team, you take a look at the story in general, in hold, of what uh, he was putting down. You're going to go ahead and you're going to give it to Giannis because in the year 2019-20 in the NBA season, Giannis has the better story than LeBron James. And he's also backed it up with the performance, both on the offensive and defensive end. Now, since Giannis has, Giannis has won it twice, unless he goes fully nuts and does something even more spectacular in terms of um, regular season success, scoring, rebounding, adding a three-point shot, something this, that, and the other, the voting is going to move to somebody else because now, after two years in a row of winning this MVP, Giannis is now old news. It's the same thing in football. When you take a look, hey, oh my goodness, 2017, Tom Brady won his third MVP. At the age of 40, he was the oldest player to ever be named MVP. Ten years after he won the first Most Valuable Player Award, ooh, wow, ooh, wee, ooh, let's give it to Tom Brady. Then in 2018, Patrick Mahomes, oh my goodness, what a story this guy was. A guy who was coming out of a Texas Tech program. He didn't come from Ohio State. He didn't come from Clemson. He didn't come from USC. He didn't come from Michigan. He didn't come from Norman, Oklahoma and be coached by Lincoln Riley. This wasn't the guy who won the Heisman Trophy. This was a guy who wasn't the number one draft pick and was expected to do things like Andrew Luck. No, this was this guy who was the, what, 12th, 10th player picked? 
in the 2017 NFL Draft. At the time, in the first season as a starter with the youngest player to win the awards as Dan Marino did at the age of 23 in 1984. Set the league on fucking fire with 50 touchdowns, 5,000 yards, over 5,000 yards. So that was a great story. That was unbelievable, revitalizing the Kansas City defending champions football franchise, one of the more storied franchises in NFL, AFL history. That was a great story, a guy who came out of nowhere. That was an awesome story, and he backed it up by having that type of unbelievable season. 50 touchdowns, 5,000 yards. The way that the Kansas City defending champions were putting points on the board, that was an aberration, if you think about it, in terms of the numbers that are going to be putting up. I'm not saying that it was a fluke. I'm not saying that Patrick Mahomes isn't as good as advertised. Patrick Mahomes is a generational talent. Patrick Mahomes has the ability, has the talent, has the potential to become one of those guys who's going to be that take the torch from a Tom Brady, from a Drew Brees, from a Aaron Rodgers. From a Ben Roethlisberger. He's going to be that type of guy. That in the 2023-24 season. He is going to be the face of the place in the NFL. So this wasn't a situation where I'm saying that. Well you know. 2018 given the MVP. It was an aberration. But unless Mahomes throws for 65 touchdowns. And 6,500 yards. For the most part. That story has already been told for the next five, six, seven years. So no matter how great Patrick Mahomes is, and I'm anticipating that Patrick Mahomes is going to be great, I don't see him winning the MVP anytime soon because that story in the NFL has already been told. And there's going to be other stories coming down the pike that I think are going to be more glamorous, that are going to be more, um, it's going to be newer, fresher. Then Patrick Mahomes throwing for 45 touchdowns and passing for 4,200 yards and the Kansas City football team going 14-2 and every year. I mean, I hate to say it, but for the most part, that's going to get old in the eyes of the viewers. There's going to be that sustained, consistent excellence that Patrick Mahomes is going to acquire, that he's already, that he's already acquired. That's awesome. That's going to keep Kansas City as one of the elite teams in the NFL, but it's not going to make for him winning any MVPs in the near time. So you take a look at 2018, Patrick Mahomes. Oh, good, wow, wow, wants the MVP, this, and the other. Then 2019, Lamar Jackson comes in. And he sets the NFL world by storm. He sets the NFL on his ear. He becomes the youngest player to win the MVP at age 22. Here's a guy who earned all 50 first place votes, making him only the second unanimous MVP in NFL history behind Tom Brady, when Tom Brady lit everything up by setting the mark for most touchdown passes and threw 25 or half of them to Randy Moss and the New England Patriots went undefeated and were blowing out everybody on their way to that undefeated regular season. But Lamar came in and, my goodness gracious, he was Michael Vick, he was Randall Cunningham, he was Bobby Douglas of the Chicago Bears back in the 60s, he was Fran Tarkington, he was all of those guys rolled into one as a runner, as a passer, as a dual-threat guy. It was almost like he was back playing football at Louisville when he won the Heisman Trophy. He rushed for over 1,200 yards. He broke Michael Vick's single-season record for a quarterback. And, oh, by the way, as far as a passing quarterback was concerned, he was damn good. 
Unioto played on a team in Baltimore which finished 14 and 2. So that was that was new. That was fresh. Who would have thought that after all of those quarterbacks in that draft class where Lamar draft where Lamar Jackson was drafted by the outgoing Ozzie Newsom, who should be as an executive in the Hall of Fame because he already is as a player. But here was a guy, Baker Mayfield was drafted before him, Josh Rosen was drafted before him, Sam Darnold was drafted before him, Josh Allen was drafted before him. We don't know what the situation in terms of the long-term longevity of excellence, greatness, mediocrity, of being a bust. We don't know that yet of Baker Mayfield. We don't know that yet of Sam Darnold. We already know that of Josh Rosen. He's not even in the league anymore. But of all of those quarterbacks that were drafted in a year where people were comparing that draft class as far as quarterbacks being taken is concerned to one of the greatest of all time, 1983, where you had Elway and you had Marino and you had Ken O'Brien, joking Jet fans. But when you speak about that draft class being compared to that and the person that's going to, at least for the beginning of their careers, jump out to such an unbelievable performance, being Lamar Jackson... That's a story that people can run with. That's a that's a story where movies can be told. That's an awesome story. So because of that, yeah, Patrick Mahomes, great. Patrick Mahomes was injured a little bit last season. Kansas City won the Super Bowl, but big deal. They were a couple of plays away from going to the Super Bowl a couple of years ago. Last time I checked, while Patrick Mahomes was good, was great, he wasn't extraordinary like he was in 2018. So... Lamar Jackson was that extraordinary talent playing extraordinary football with an extraordinary bunch of teammates on an extraordinary team with an extraordinary, ext- uh, with an awesome story. Extraordinary. <sighs> so there you go. So all what I'm saying with all of that is take a look at the story of Russell Wilson. This is a guy who for the last four or five years has been one of the elite quarterbacks in the NFL. This is a guy who already won a Super Bowl. This was a guy who was considered too small in stature to be playing quarterback. This was a guy who was drafted in the later rounds by the Seattle Seahawks. This was a guy who was supposed to be the backup to Matt Flynn, the former quarterback of the Detroit Lions who came over for a big money deal. Russell Wilson was going to be nothing more than the backup quarterback. He was going to play Jalen Hurts to Matt Flynn's Carson Wentz. But give it up to Pete Carroll. He saw something in terms of leadership, in terms of philosophy, in terms of attitude, which gave him the nod. And after years of being the secondary guy, after years of being that guy who was considered nothing more than a quote-unquote game manager, because the Legion of Boom was the one who got all of the praise and the glory and Marshall Lynch just being there because he doesn't want to get fined. That it took a while for Russell Wilson, despite all the success that he had in playing in the Pacific Northwest, didn't help his cause in terms of his celebrity, in terms of his, uh, in terms of him you know, getting the notoriety that uh, he deserved. So it took a while. And it kept building. And he ain't in New York. And he ain't in Chicago. And he's not playing for the Giants. And he's not playing for the Bears. And he's not playing for the Steelers. And he's not playing for the Packers. He's way out there in the Pacific Northwest. Way out there in the Pacific Northwest. So now, 
everything starts to come together. Now, we have something that we can go on. Now, the public has something that they can get behind, not just in the Pacific Northwest, but also in L.A., also in New York, also in Chicago, also in Texas, all across this great country of ours. They finally have something as far as football fans that they can get themselves wrapped around. Russell Wilson and his nine-year career, he's never received a first-place vote. The only thing more astounding and incredulous in learning that fact is the one that Drew Brees has never received a first-place vote for NFL MVP. This is the guy who owns every single fucking passing record, quarterback record that there is. So Russell Wilson is putting himself right now, so he's got the backdrop. Despite being one of the top four or five or six best quarterbacks in the NFL for the past three or four years, this is a guy who couldn't even sniff getting a first-place vote for being NFL MVP. Now, all of a sudden, if he's the main guy that's going to be cooking for the Seattle Seahawks, and all of a sudden the Seahawks, after their showcase win over the New England Patriots, the way that he carved up Bill Belichick's defense, all of a sudden now that got that momentum going. And now if you take a look at the division that the Seattle Seahawks play in, now you take a look at the possible record that the Seattle Seahawks might have. And if you're thinking about that defense for Seattle, this is going to be a team if they're going to finish 13-3. and if they're going to finish 12-4, and four, these guys aren't going to be averaging 17 points a game. These guys aren't going to be averaging 21 points a game if they want to have the success that they want to have and the success, you know, uh, going to Russell Wilson leaving, uh, winning the MVP. They're going to have to put up 28 to 31 points a game. Oh, and by the way, Marshall Lynch isn't coming through that door, folks. Oh, and by the way, for Seattle to have the ultimate success, I'm here to tell you, Richard Sherman isn't coming through that door, folks. And if he is, he's going to be wearing a San Francisco 49er jersey. Earl Thomas is not coming through that door, folks. And even if he is, he's going to be nothing more than a shell of himself. Michael Bennett isn't coming through that door, folks. That defense, the Legion of Boom, is not coming through that door, folks. And if you take a look at the defense, I've said, you know, if Russell Wilson is going to win the MVP, then Jamal Adams is going to have to be right in the running with Aaron Donald of winning the Defensive Player of the Year in the league. Because if you take a look at that core, if you take a look at that defense over the first two games of the uh, Seattle Seahawks, there's going to be some situations where the Seattle offense is going to have to bail them out. There's going to be multiple games this season. If they're going to put such a small pass rush on the quarterback like they did against New England with Cam Newton, then batting down the hatch of Seattle offense, you're going to have to put up some points. And then the way that we play football in the year 2020, just like we did in 2018 and 2019 and 2017, you ain't going to be winning football games trying to win on quote-unquote defense. And Seattle doesn't have that defense. So they're going to be throwing the ball. And Russell Wilson is going to be putting up numbers. Now, do I think that, you know, he's going to be averaging over 350 yards a game? Or do you think, do I think that, uh, you know, this is a situation where he's going to be completing 80% of his passes for the entire season and the performance that we saw against the Atlanta Falcons on opening day and the performance that we saw on Sunday Night Football against the New England Patriots? Do I think that's going to continue, especially with the schedule that Seattle has this season? No, I don't think it is. 
But man, if he can continue to play the way that he's playing, he's got the he's got the wide receiving core. Remember all this nonsense in the off season, even a little bit last season, where uh, Wilson was up there um, was up there campaigning for Antonio Brown and Josh Gordon. He was out throwing with Antonio Brown, and he was out there talking about he needs to play with us. He needs to be on the team. And we need to see what we can do to get him on the team. Bullshnickens. Hey, man, the wide receiving core of DJ Metcalf, who's built like Terrell Owens and Andre Johnson, and you have Tyler Lockett and David Moore, they've been very good so far through two games. You need to go ahead and get um, catastrophes like uh, Gordon or Brown, those who have been so unreliable in the past, Gordon with drugs, Antonio Brown acting a fool. So uh, it's it's all there. You know, they got the running back from Houston. That's nice, but he's not going to be a guy who's going to be 1,400, 1,500 game uh, rusher. He ain't going to be Ezekiel Elliott, Carlos Hyde, who they acquired for uh, Seattle to be their starting running back. So for the offense, it's all about Russell Wilson. And he's going to have to put up more, the same type of uh, performances that he did against the, uh, as he did like he did against the the, uh, um, New England Patriots on Sunday night. But he can do it. He can do it. And he might be the MVP. Again, Jamal Adams is going to have to be the defensive MVP for the Saints to be, for the uh, Seattle Seahawks to be a real Super Bowl threat. Because you're talking about a Seattle defense that has allowed 800, 800, 831 yards passing in the two games. Now, according to Pro Football Reference Database, that's the second highest toll by any team through the first two weeks of the season. 831 points. What in the world of Cam Chandler, Chancellor is going on here? Only the 2018 Kansas City Chiefs allowed their opponents more passing yards through two games at 860. And Oh, by the way, that was the year that the uh, Kansas City football team went to the AFC Championship game. But Seattle managed one sack. Five quarterback hits on Cam Newton on Sunday. They lost two of their key defensive players, Bruce Irvin, you know, defensive back Marquise Blair. Both are done for the season after tearing their ACLs. So, look, you can sit there and talk about, well, the run game has improved, right? I mean, over the last two years, they allowed almost five yards per carry. Now they're in a situation where they're they're averaging three yards. The opponents are averaging only three yards per carry. That's an improvement. Yeah, it's an improvement. Why do you need to run the football against the Seahawks when you can pass it all over the field? And the last time I checked, the Atlanta Falcons starting running back Todd Gurley. That's not the Todd Gurley of 2017. And last time I checked, the New England Patriots don't have themselves a marquee running back. So the fact their best running back is Cam Newton. So of course they're going to be throwing the ball a lot. So if you're talking about, hey, it's a lot better because only Pittsburgh and the Tampa Brady Buccaneers are only two teams that are better, allowing only two and a half yards per carry. Um, that's great, but I'm quite sure that, well, I know for sure that the defense for Tampa Bay and Pittsburgh overall are much better than Seattle. If you take a look at the statistics and you take a look from, you know, just your your eyes and your brain, you know, computing and putting everything together. So, man, it's you know, you don't sit here and you say, yeah, MVP, MVP. Who knows, man? It's four weeks from now, we could be having a total different discussion on who's the MVP and who's doing what and all of these type of things. But I'm openly rooting for Russell Wilson. It's his time. 
It's his time right now. He's paid his dues. He's done the work. He has the background. He has the attractive story. It's time for Russell Wilson. If he continues to play this way, it's about time that Russell Wilson wins his first NFL MVP. Wendell's World of Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace, so glad that you could be with us. People will get on board, falling on a love train, love train, oh, come on, man. See, this is, all right, I'm being sidetracked, but I just want to say something because this, this is one thing, this is the reason why I really can't get into Japanese wrestling, and this is another reason why eventually I'm going to go back to uh, WWE and uh, pay less attention to AEW. I mean, look, man. For me, wrestling is all about telling the story. Okay? what I don't care about Hurricane Ranas. I don't care about the hot spots. I don't care about any of that nonsense. When you get into the ring, can you tell me a story? Is the storyline believable? And when you get in there, can you please give me the story through your wrestling? When Chris Benoit, hope he's burning in hell... When he won his championship at WrestleMania when he was fighting Triple H and Shawn Michaels, those guys, those old school guys, and I, mean, I don't know how old school we're talking about, but those guys knew how to tell a story. So when you got into the ring, I was emotionally invested in what happened, even though I know that this is nothing more than soap opera for men. I get it. I understand. It's all choreographed. I understand. I get it all. There's, I know there's a predetermined winner-loser. Yes, yes, yes. I know all this stuff. I know these guys, for the most part, are actors. Yes, I get it. I understand it. But when you guys get into the ring, tell me the fucking story. Don't give me hot spots. Don't give me coming off the top rope. Don't give me all of this crazy shit to where, you know... you. I'll do a crazy stunt, stunt, I'll do this, I'll do that. You'll kick out a two. Like, the stuff that comes along with it, like, you're going to kick out a two after all of that? There ain't no way anybody should be living after all of that type of, all of those type of moves. And then they reverse it, and then they do their little hot spots. It's like Japanese wrestling, where the fans uh, and the audience sit back. Have you ever watched a pro-Japanese wrestling match? It's really interesting because it's like they don't get into it like the Americans do. They almost see it as like ballet. They almost see it like like a musical. So they'll do their moves. They'll do their moves. They'll do their moves. And after they're done doing their moves, the crowd will go, ah, very nice. Instead of like, yeah, kick his ass, yeah. I mean, you know, so AEW has a little bit too much of that. Just tell, tell me the story. 
you know, save the, save the, you know, high-flying stuff for, you know, the finishing ending type of things, you know, for the climax. Don't keep teasing me because after a while, it's like one, two, kick out. It's like, come on, y'all, just end the fucking match. You know, even someone as great as Kenny Omega. I mean, when he had that iron, when he had that one-hour match, it was awesome over in Japan. But it was just kind of like, that shit won't work in the United States because it's just too many hot spots. It's just too many ridiculous moves. And you're not selling any of these crazy-ass moves that you're putting on this guy. You're not doing that. So, I don't know, man. I love my wrestling, though. I do. I got to get back to it. And, uh, yeah, for the WWE Alexa Bliss. Oh, Alexa Bliss, Naomi, and Charlotte Flair. Charlotte Flair being engaged to Andrade. Very nice. Very nice to both of you. That's a good-looking couple. And uh, I just say Buddy Murphy. Look, I don't know. I don't know Alexa Bliss from what I've seen on the outside looking in. But man, you two didn't go ahead and get married, Buddy Murphy. What the fuck is wrong with you? Unless, if I'm with Alexa Bliss, unless she tries to do harm to my mom or to my goddaughter or to. Um, Mikel Davis or anything like that I ain't leaving Alexa Bliss If Alexa Bliss says jump I'm saying sweetheart how high Jay Uso's with Naomi Stay with her Jay Stay with her First of all stop drinking and driving and getting yourself in trouble And stay with Naomi Because that is one attractive Good looking woman And from the outside looking in She seems to have a good heart and soul also how did I get in all this, by the way? Wendell's World of Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Speaking about what's going down in the NFL. All right, we talked about Russell Wilson, his uh, what he's doing to build his MVP resume after only two games. And I also qualified the statement by saying, I know, I know, I know it's early in the year. And yes, I know that we're not going to be making any definitive, you know, uh, opinions and thoughts about anybody winning the MVP or anybody doing anything after only two weeks. But I mentioned before, man, you know, the NFL, just like the NBA, just like Major League Baseball, just like hockey, just like anything, for those who are reporting, for those who are, um, for those who are casting a ballot for the MVP, these guys are all, for the most part. Uh, sports writers and writers. And what do writers like? They write. They like writing stories. They like covering stories. They like covering something new or fresh or something like that. So for Russell Wilson, this quest for the 2020 season is all something new, something fresh. Lamar was new and fresh. Patrick Mahomes was new and fresh. Tom Brady, even after the many years that he was playing, the story was new and fresh. So... Russell Wilson, so far, my my early leader to be the NFL MVP. But, man, we'll see. We'll see. Another quarterback who's gotten off to a really good start. In fact, a great start. Who would have known? The white Cam Newton. Buffalo Bills quarterback Josh Allen last week became the first Bills quarterback to top 300 yards passing in the game since 2016. Can you name that quarterback? I can't. This week, he became the first one to top 400 in the game. Since 2002, that's that's a long time. So according to the NFL, Allen became just the fourth quarterback to have 700 or more passing yards, six or more touchdown passes, and no interceptions in his team's first two games of the season. Interesting. 
sound like Tim Kirchin. Interesting. So how have times changed in Buffalo, man? You're talking about a defensive-minded coach, Sean McDermott, coming from being a defensive coordinator with the Carolina Panthers, learning his craft in terms of running a football team, mainly from Ron Rivera when he was the head coach, Rivera of the Carolina Panthers. So just like Rivera, McDermott comes in. He wants to run the football. He wants to play defense. He wants to make sure that – the quarterback doesn't do anything to jeopardize the defense, put them in disadvantageous positions. So from 2018 to 2019, the Bills had the third most rushing attempts in the NFL behind Baltimore and behind Seattle. In fact, Allen was the only quarterback with 1,000-plus rushing yards and at least 15 rushing team, uh, touchdowns during that span, which is interesting when you think about Lamar Jackson during that time. This season, flipping the script, Allen now leads the NFL in passing. He's at 730 yards. He ranks 8th in completion percentage, 70%. And that's heading into a Monday night football game against the Rams. Josh Allen, who one of the knocks on him, or one of the main knocks coming out of him, coming out of uh, when he was in college and going into the draft with the fact that his inaccuracy, just kind of like with Cam Newton, a big, strong, talented athlete with a God-given talent to throw the football in terms of the arm strength and everything like that, but the accuracy was inconsistent. So, hey, man, at least for the first two games, he's uh, Allen is doing work. He was past game against the uh, Dolphins. He was 15-22 to 22 for 249 yards and two touchdowns and no interceptions. Before halftime, Sean McDermott's Buffalo Bills. Josh Allen at the quarterback going into, what, the third or fourth year? Third year. 15 of 22 for 249 yards, two touchdowns, and no interceptions for the game. No, not for the game, you stupid motherfucker. For the half. Sean McDermott let Josh Allen throw the ball 22 times. And then after the Dolphins took a 20-17 lead in the fourth quarter, Allen threw not one, but two touchdowns including a 46-yarder to John Brown to put the game away. Josh Allen? Wow, what a difference. What a difference a year in the acquisition of a true number one receiver, Stephon Diggs, has made for the uh, Buffalo Bills. Now you have that true number one receiver to go with the speed wide receiver, John Brown, and his band of renown. And uh, it's it's been great. And we talked about storylines and everything like that. Here's a kid from... Wyoming, Nowheresville, Wyoming, who wasn't recruited by anybody, who had to go to junior college. And then after junior college, he didn't go to any of the marquee college football teams like Cam Newton did. Josh Allen went to Wyoming. I saw him play when he was with Wyoming. I saw him play a Pac-10 school. I don't know. It might have been Purdue. It might have been Illinois. I don't know what it was, but I saw him play because... You know, there was a write-up on him in Bleacher Report heading into his final season at Wyoming and all this type of stuff. So I was intrigued because they were talking about this guy, six foot eight, he has a howitzer for an arm, and he can do all this, and he can do all that. And I was intrigued by the story, so I wanted to see what he looked like against not Mountain West opponents. I don't give a damn what he does against Colorado State or UNLV or New Mexico State. Big fucking deal. How is he going to do against some of the big boys from the Power Five conferences? So I saw him play against... As I mentioned before, I forget it was years ago, Purdue, Illinois, one of those two on the road, and uh, he didn't do much. 
I walked away going, man, this is it, huh? This is what it's all about, huh? This is what Josh Allen is, is uh, all about, huh? All right. And then I saw a little bit of what he did in a bowl game. And again, I was like, all right, that's fine. Okay. But uh, this was a situation back in the old days. Back in the old days, 15, 20 years ago, Josh Allen would have still been on the bench. Not because, of you know, he would have gotten a chance, he would have failed, and then he would have put him back on the bench. But, you know, he would have been given the time coming from the lower level of college football that he played and the lack of experience that he had because he didn't go hang out with Trent Dilfer on the 11-11, on the, you know, QB 11 you know, the uh, where the top high school football players go, quarterbacks go, and they learn from Dilfer and all this kind of stuff. So about 10, 15, 20 years ago, Josh Allen would have been drafted but in the first round, but he would have probably spent the first year or two on the bench, if you really think about it. But now in today's game, you know, he's getting the opportunity to play. And he has gone from a guy where it's almost similar, I think, to a Roethlisberger. If you really think about it, Roethlisberger was a guy when he first started for Pittsburgh that he was, you know what, let the defense win it and hand it off to Jerome Brown. We'll throw it every once in a while, and that's about it. We'll rely on our running game. We'll rely on our offensive line, and we'll rely on our defense. And they didn't ask Josh, and they didn't ask Roethlisberger for those first couple of years to go ahead and do what he's been doing for the past now, I don't know, what, 10, 11, 12 years? So um, that's what they had Josh Allen do for the most part. You know, run him. He's young. He's big. He's strong. Let him take the hits. Let him run the football. And uh, now he's been turned loose. He has the weapons to do so. So, you know, one of the things I must pause, though, on all this talk about Josh Allen possibly being MVP. I heard Dan Orlaski on... uh, the Mike Greenberg show in the morning talk about, you know, he's the main guy or he's the guy that he would choose for the MVP. And, you know, Orlovsky knows more about playing football at the quarterback position than I'll ever know. But I, my, my one thing that I would say as he was expelling on about how great Josh Allen has been is that the only thing that I take a little pause to is that they've played, Buffalo has played the New York Jets and the Miami Dolphins two of the lesser-tier teams in the NFL. And when you're speaking about the NFL, when you're speaking about the New York Jets, good Lord, through two games, they might be the worst team in the NFL. The third and 31, and will gain 55 yards on a running play Jets. So the next six games, it's going to give me and you and everybody else a better indication if Allen is the real deal, at least for this season. When, you know, next Monday again, he plays the... Los Angeles Rams, then they're at the Las Vegas Raiders, then they're at the Tennessee Titans, then they play Kansas City on a Thursday night, then at the Jets, you know, whatever. Then New England, and then Seattle. We'll go ahead and we'll see after that, after that stretch of games, how good Josh Allen is going to be. I don't think the man is going to fall off the charts, but uh, I think when everything is all said and done and the smoke clears from that stretch of games, that the talk of Josh Allen being one of the best quarterbacks in the NFL and being in contention for the MVP, I think that will have 
cooled considerably. Wendell's World of Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. The most surprising quarterback, though, through the first two weeks of the season has been Cam. Oh, Cam. Cam Newton. Wow. Who would have thunk? Who would have known? Through the first two weeks of this season, man, he's putting himself in a position to make a whole lot of money for a year or two in the uh, starting in the 20 to 21 season. He's leading the team with 122 yards rushing on 26 carries. He's thrown for 552 yards. He's 45 of 63. He had one touchdown, one interception. He's rushed for four touchdowns. He's the perfect. Uh, he's the perfect short yardage goal. Uh, weapon, despite the fact of what happened at the end of the game against Seattle on Sunday night. He was 30 of 44. He threw for almost 400 yards, 397 yards, one touchdown. He had 11 rushes for 47 yards and two short touchdowns. He's playing better for New England right now than Tom Brady is for uh, Tampa Bay through two weeks. And I think that Tom Brady had a lot more time to acclimate himself with the scheme and everything that was going down in Tampa Bay more than what Tom Brady, the time that uh, Cam Newton had to acclimate himself with what uh, the Patriots were doing. And as of right now, I think New England is the better team with Cam Newton at the quarterback than Tom Brady would have been through two weeks of the season. Last season, what we were talking about, right? Oh, man, what's going on? The skilled players for New England's no good, and that's the reason why Tom Brady isn't lighting the world on fire and this so-called decline, which some people are talking about with Brady and his skills and everything. Well, that's really smoke and mirrors, and that's really not true because this guy doesn't have any type of role players or this guy doesn't have any offensive weapons around him. Well, if that's true, why is it through first? I understand. I understand. Hey, man, I understand. Would you calm down? Through the first two games of the season, I get it. Look, the, the Patriots were 8-0 with Brady at their quarterback last season before they fell off the cliff in terms of the expectations of possibly winning the Super Bowl to are they going to get out of the first round. That happened rather quickly. So look, two games in, I get it. Small sample size, I get it. But through the first two games of the season, Cam Newton has been working much better with the receivers that the New England Patriots have. The Patriots wide receivers have been much more productive with Cam Newton at their quarterback than they ever did with Tom Brady at their quarterback last season. And you also have to remember for the first, what, two games or whatever, that the uh, Patriots started off the season with Antonio Brown. And I still think from a passing standpoint that the New England Patriots under Cam Newton has been better in that situation. When you're talking about uh, Demontre Beard, uh, Bird, excuse me, and Nikhil Harry, Bird has grabbed six catches for 72 yards while Harry produced a career-high eight catches for 72 yards on Sunday night. Bird wasn't targeted in the opening win over the Dolphins, but against the Seahawks, he was targeted nine times. So this is a situation where, you know, he, Julian Edelman got some catches. He was, made some big plays. Cam throwing the ball down deep. So this is a situation where, you know, Cam is not being selfish. Cam is not being uh, tunnel-visioned in terms of who he's targeting as a receiver. So he's doing work, man. He, he is really doing work. And I'm, I'm glad to see. Look, I, I'm not really, I don't know what my thoughts and feelings are. 
about Cam Newton because from a guy who's never met Cam Newton, never talked to Cam Newton, never hung out with Cam Newton, don't know anything personally about Cam Newton, from the outside looking in, you know, he always seemed to me to be just a little bit too much into Cam. That Cam loved himself some Cam more than anything else in the world. He loved himself some Cam. But if you spoke to anybody who played with him, if you spoke to the personnel, if you spoke to the uh, organization, the workers, who, the, the, the employees who worked for the Panthers who weren't football players, if you took a look at all the good things that he did in the community, I mean, this is a guy with a huge heart. This is a guy who's a very unselfish person. This is a guy who's a very giving person. And this is a guy who's an absolute wonderful teammate. And, you know, when he's doing the Superman and when he's up there celebrating by himself and he's doing all this kind of nonsense and he's wearing these goofy-looking clothes and all this, this kind of stuff, to me, from the outside looking in and not knowing anything about him, the ignorant point of view that I was taking was, well, this guy's all about me, 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 me. You don't dress like that if you don't want the attention on you. You don't go ahead and do the Superman deal if you don't want that attention on you. You don't go ahead and do the things that you're doing if you don't want the spotlight shown on you and only on you. But as I learned, I was wrong in that situation. And the guy comes over to the Patriots. Bill Belichick talks about how unselfish he is. Talks about how he's the first one in the uh, on the premises in the morning. And he's the last one to leave. He's a very unselfish teammate. He's done everything that uh, we've asked him to do without any complaint, without any questioning. He's been voted captain already by his teammates. So... You know, my my only deal with Cam is, can he continue to play this way for an entire season? That's the only thing that's stopping me from saying, hey, you know what? Newton quickly is moving back up into that top seven, top eight category in terms of uh, the best quarterbacks in the league. He had that incredible year, 2015. But if you remember that year in which the Panthers went 15-1, and made it all the way to the Super Bowl where they lost to the Denver Broncos, I mean, it was also a total team effort in terms of Newton wasn't sitting back there slinging the ball 45, 50 times. This wasn't a guy who was putting up video game Patrick Mahomes type numbers. This was a guy, at least as far as passing numbers, this was a guy who, you know, the Panthers relied on running the ball. Now, Newton was a big part of running the ball, but, you know, they relied just as much on running the ball and putting their defense in advantageous positions to where you're not going to be giving up a whole lot of points. Um... More than anything else, it was far from a one-man show. So what Cam Newton is doing with the New England Patriots through two games and and being that threat, I mean, for the first time in over 20 years, Belichick has something to work with within a quarterback to, you know, the the read-pass option. I mean, it's opening up so many things. That, That is opening up the wide receiver's Uh, making plays. I mean, when he was throwing that ball, some of those passes were in the tight coverage, but a lot of those times after uh, play action and RPOs, I mean, those wide receivers were wide open. He just turned around, pitch and catch. I mean, he wasn't even going off his number one receiver a lot. So, and look, as I mentioned before, the Seattle defense, the Legion of Boom ain't coming through that door, folks, and I already read you the um, stats, passing numbers that the Seahawks have been giving up and the fact that they didn't put a lot of pressure on Newton through the entire game. But, man, so far, Cam Newton has been playing great football. Tough week for the Patriots organization, too, man. I mean, they really showed a lot of heart. They really showed a lot of gumption. They uh, really showed a lot of moral fiber and character and 
toughness when uh, some of the, the tough week that New England went through. You're speaking about the running back James White. He was informed right before the game that the parent that his parents were involved in a serious car crash. As of me recording this podcast, you know it was already confirmed that uh, James White's father he, he died in the crash. His mother is clinging to life in a Florida hospital. Early in the week, Belichick's 98-year-old mother died, caused him to postpone a regularly scheduled Q&A question with reporters. So for those guys to come out, and look, they're not playing in the normal adverse conditions that playing up there in Seattle with that crowd can apply to the visiting team, but yet still a very heroic uh, performance and a very uh, heartfelt performance. My prayers are with both uh, James White and Bill Belichick for the loss of their loved ones. Must be tough. Must be very tough. So, Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. One thing that I want to clap back at, though, because I read this on Twitter, Dallas Morning, the guy's name I forgot, but Mike Freeman uh, liked it. And, oh, shit, I forgot who else. But two guys I highly respect in the in the business covering football. And... uh the writers for the Dallas Morning News, so I forgot who his name was. That's John Jacques. Oh, I forgot. I know him. I see him. But, you know, when you're old like me, you know, the memory comes and goes as far as faces, names, and places. But he was, he wrote, a, he had tweeted that, um, and I talked about this on my YouTube uh, podcast about this. He was talking about Cam Newton and the fact that he's making basically the minimum and there's backup quarterbacks who are making more money than he is. And, you know, I wonder why that is. Hmm, the NFL, Colin Kaepernick, lack of black head coaches, lack of opportunities, the Washington Snyderskin situation. Hmm, I wonder why Cam Newton, former MVP, I wonder why he's making the league minimum. Could it be dealing with something with his race? Hmm, I mean, that was what he was implying. And as I said on my video podcast, in this situation, in this situation, I'm going to clap back on that. I don't think in this situation, race played a major reason why Cam Newton is making the money that he's making. Number one, Cam Newton has been paid when he was with the Carolina Panthers. He got paid for a little while there. He was the highest paid quarterback in the game. Also, this was a situation where Cam Newton was injury prone. Cam Newton is 31 years old. Cam Newton barely played last season. We don't know what's going on with Cam Newton. Because of the pandemic, Cam Newton couldn't come in and perform for any teams, couldn't take a physical with any other teams, wouldn't allow the, well, not allow, I mean, because of the pandemic, he wasn't able to have the organization's doctors check him out to take a look to see how well he was doing. We don't know. I don't know about what type of, Demands that Cam Newton wanted. Did he was he only going to come back and be a starter? Was he only going to come back for a certain price before we finally realized that the chances, that the opportunity? We don't know. Say for instance, I mean, you take a look at the San Francisco 49ers situation. You take a look at the Denver Broncos situation. If Cam Newton didn't sign with the New England Patriots and he's still on the street right now, do you think that the Denver Broncos might come in and see about? you know, getting his services and paying him a much more suitable, respectable amount. The same thing 
with the uh, San Francisco 49ers, whose expectations are basically Super Bowl, NFC Championship, at least, very least, make the playoffs. So, you know, in a situation like this, I don't think skin color, I don't think, you know, race played a factor in Cam Newton making the money that he was making. And as I mentioned before, when I was speaking, when when, when talking about how great Cam Newton has been playing this season, if he goes ahead and he performs, continues to perform like he had been for the entire season with the New England Patriots, and he continues to play like this, believe me, skin color ain't going to come up at all because next season Cam Newton is going to get paid if he continues to play like this. Now, is he going to be getting... Is he going to be getting possibly Dak Prescott, Deshaun Watson, Patrick Mahomes, Russell Wilson type money? No, but he's going to get paid. And if he has a season like this, hopefully he has an agent that's going to be good enough to say, yeah, we need to recoup some of these dollars that he lost because last season he played for the minimum. So, you know, I'm just going to throw out an arbitrary number. So if the performance that he gave last year warranted him a contract somewhere around $15 million. Uh, we're going to have to bump that up to 17 18 So, you know, I think Newton, if he continues to play this well, he'll sign a two-year contract with somebody, th- two-year, three-year contract with an option, and um, go on from there. But I, I don't think skin color played any role in the uh, reason why Cam Newton is getting paid the, the way that he's getting paid. New England always underpays folks. How many years has Tom Brady been underpaid by the New England Patriots? Was that because he was white and blonde-haired and married to a beautiful model? Yes. But also, you know, you know you, with the New England Patriots, I don't think skin color comes into this situation regarding Cam Newton's. There's other things in the NFL that you can point out where racism is very prevalent or uh, bias is very prevalent and is very obvious when it comes to the NFL and players and employees of color. In this situation, with Cam Newton being um, you know, paid like he's being paid by the New England Patriots, in my opinion, my thought pattern, I don't think race had anything to do with it. Wendell's World of Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Wow, I am running through this bad boy. Maybe I should have talked about the NBA. <laughs> I didn't have time. I didn't have time. I'm going to be concentrating on the NFL. So, yeah, speaking about the uh, NFL going through week two, some other teams of interest. Hey, Dak Prescott, uh-oh, what's going on, Cowboy fans? What's happening? Played a great game against the Atlanta Falcons. First player in NFL history to throw for more than 400 yards while rushing for at least three touchdowns. Now, those were three quarterback sneaks, but who gives a fuck? A touchdown is a touchdown. Hey, man, the first half, the Cowboys were sleepwalking, included three turnovers, defensive lapses. At the intermission, they were trailing 29-10. Thank goodness gracious that they were playing the Atlanta Falcons, who knows a thing or two or three or Super Bowl performance about giving up big leads. So they came back to win 40-39. Prescott again throwing for 450 yards. What's up? As I mentioned before, Cowboys, Cowboy fans, Prescott fans, Prescott haters, let's go. Let's get into it. We're going to be doing this quarter to quarter. We're going to be doing this possession by possession. We're going to be doing this game by game, right? As I mentioned before, which Dak Prescott is the real Dak Prescott? Is he the guy that threw for 450 yards and let it come back in the second half against the Atlanta Falcons? 
Or is he that guy that was just pedestrian and ordinary against the Los Angeles Rams? The Los Angeles Rams, a team that looks like they might be a playoff contender, a team that might be the leading contender to win their division, a good team, solid team. Prescott looked average. I shouldn't even say that. Prescott looked good. Prescott played well. Prescott was decent. Now you go ahead and you talk about a team like the Atlanta Falcons, who were already lit up the week before by the Seattle Seahawks, playing their second consecutive home uh, road game, coming in against the Cowboys. He goes ahead and has himself the, a big second half. And let's also remember that it wasn't if it wasn't for A, playing the Atlanta Falcons, and B, what the fuck were they doing on that onside kick? We're talking about the Atlanta Falcons being thirty, uh, being thirty-nine to thirty-seven winners, and all of a sudden the Cowboys being no one too. Then what's going to be the narrative when it comes to Dak Prescott? Then it's going to be, oh, what he can put up good numbers, but he can't win a football game. That's going to be it right there. So that blunder by the Atlanta Falcons. I mean, you could make the argument if you're a Dak Prescott hater that it was more of the Atlanta Falcons giving. Prescott the opportunity to make one or two plays after that after that uh, mishandle of the onside kick to put them in position to win a football game. We're speaking about a team in the Falcons once again that have been known to give a big lead. So what are we talking about here? What does it mean with Dak Prescott here? What does it mean going forward with Dak Prescott here? I tell you what, and I'm telling you this on Wendell's World of Sports, the podcast. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. When it comes to the Dallas Cowboys... And Dak Prescott, I talked about Russell Wilson winning the MVP. I talked about Josh Allen up there as one of the better quarterbacks in the league. I talked about the resurgence of Cam Newton and what he's doing with the New England Patriots. And if those three quarterbacks continue to do what they're doing through week 8, 9, 10, 12, 14, I mean, all three of those are going to be in the discussion. Let's also not forget the storyline of Dak Prescott, if Prescott can have more games or continue to have games similar, I'm not saying he has to throw for 450 yards, put up 40 points, and score three touchdowns. I'm not saying that, but if he can average, (laughs) if he can have a little bit better of a season that he did last season as far as statistically is concerned, passing yardage, touchdowns and such, if he goes over, I don't know, shit, man. If he goes for like 4,500 yards, 40 touchdowns, 38 touchdowns, the Cowboys go 12-4, and four, win the division, you don't put Dak Prescott up there in terms of MVP consideration, strong MVP consideration. As I mentioned before, the storylines, here we have a guy, Dak Prescott, fourth-round draft pick from Mississippi State, battling depression, a guy who um, is in the final year of his contract playing for America's team with the owner as polarizing as Jimmy, uh, not Jimmy Johnson, but Jerry Jones. You don't think that's going to get some buzz? You don't think that's going to be an interesting story? You don't think that background is going to lend to Dak Prescott getting more spotlight on him to be put into the MVP consideration category if he continues to have Games like he did on Sunday against the Falcons. If he does this against, say, for instance, the Philadelphia Eagles and bury that group. If he has a game like that against the Seattle Seahawks. If he has a game 
more games like that against playoff contenders? Shoot, I think that it's more... I think it's more of a possibility that that could happen concerning Dak Prescott in terms of the role that he's been on. I don't know if it's a role because he just did it for one week, but the narrative that I'm bringing, the storyline that I'm telling, the shit that I'm talking concerning Dak Prescott, I think that's more believable than Josh Allen at the end of November being up there in MVP consideration. As far as you want to go ahead and start talking about that stuff. Two weeks into the fucking season. So we'll see. Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. What does it mean for Dallas moving forward? I don't know, man. We're two weeks into the season. They're one and one. The defense stunk. It's nice to see that the um, wide receivers. I mean, if the wide receivers can have games to where they're, I don't know. It's two games. I mean, they were good against the Rams. They weren't horrible. C.D. Lamb, I think he's going to progress to get better. Amari Cooper, is he a true number one? Is he a true number one for a team that's going to be elite? Ezekiel Elliott, he's still strong. He's still good, but he hadn't had that 25-carry, 128-yard performance, three touchdowns yet. Oh, I forgot. We're two fucking weeks into the season. Can I please give myself eight weeks, nine weeks, ten weeks, and then come back to this and ask the question about Ezekiel Elliott? Ask the question about the development of C.D. Lamb. Ask the question about Amari Cooper being a true number one receiver. Talk about Michael Galloway being the, uh, <sighs> shit. Who was that guy that played opposite of Michael Irvin? Then went on to play at the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, signed a big contract. He was the wide receiver, University of Tennessee. Alvin Harper, thank you. Hey, man, when you get old, you just got to bring this stuff up. You got to light those timbers before that flame of the right answer comes into your brain and then transfers down to your mouth. Yeah, so can um, Michael Gallup be the Alvin Harper to Amari Cooper's Michael Irvin? We don't know. Can Ezekiel Elliott be the Emmett Smith of those championship days? Can Mike McCarthy be the Jimmy Johnson? Oh, please. But we'll see. We'll see. Two weeks is way too... Uh, Way too early to find out. And the defense, again, I mean, Van Der Esch, the injuries that they've had, you're really going to give up 39 points to the uh, to the Atlanta Falcons, who could have scored a little bit more if they would have tried kicking an extra point instead of a damn two-point conversion. So I don't know, man. We'll, we'll move on. We'll move on. Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Hey, man, what the hell? What the hell is going on with the Philadelphia Eagles and Carson Wentz? Wow. Lost to the Los Angeles Rams at home, home opener, 37-19. They committed three turnovers, gave up 449 total yards. Carson Wentz should thank the almighty being that the team is not allowing fans into the stadium. He better thank Jesus almighty that those cardboard pictures of fans can't boo. Because good God almighty, what the hell is he doing? The way that he's playing now? Carson Wentz probably wouldn't give a damn if he played in front of an empty home stadium until the year 2022 when they can finally cut his ass for the contract that he has if he continues to play this poorly. He finished the game 26-43, to 242 yards, a passer rating of 55.6. No, that ain't getting it done. That ain't getting it done. That's not getting it done. Two games. It was bad enough. Look, the Rams have a pretty good defense. The Rams, if you know, did the, the individual parts, 
they're set up for having a very good defense. But again, Wentz is making poor throws. He's making poor reads. He doesn't have the luxury of having a true number one receiver. The wide receiver, although tight end is not making plays. He doesn't have a running game to speak of. Um, He's kind of out there on an island by himself in that situation. So, I mean, moving forward, I don't know. I don't know where you go. The only reason for hope in Philadelphia is the fact that, you know what, they play in the NFC East, which is a terrible, which has terrible teams outside of Dallas. I mean, you've got Washington, bad. The Giants, especially especially without Barkley, bad. The Cowboys, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, they could be anywhere. I think worst case scenario, they're average. Best case scenario, they're elite. Meet them in the medium. They're good. They're 10-6 good. 9-7 good. You know, could the Eagles come back and win the division or tie for the division with an 8-8 record, 7-9? That's their only hope. But, man, their offensive line is terrible. Playmakers, where are they? Defensive playmakers, where are they? Not putting any pressure on the quarterback. Sean McVay ran circles around Doug Peterson as an offensive play caller on Sunday. What's going on? What's happening with the Philadelphia Eagles? I'm not panicking just yet. I'm not ready to give up. You can't give up on Carson Wentz, even if you wanted to. People talking about, well, you know, they've got Jalen Hurts and this and the other. Hey, look, man, Carson Wentz is contractually obligated to stay with the Philadelphia Eagles for at least another two, two years. It would be financial suicide to um, trade or get rid of, I mean, he's untradeable, but to release Carson Wentz right now with the money that he's owed would be financial suicide. It would cripple the team moving forward. So nice to see Jalen Hurts, and I understand, you know, hey, you don't draft him for the second round for uh, for him just to sit back and be a, uh, you know, a, a decent piece. Yeah, but you know what, I'm not ready. Do you really think Jalen Hurts, as badly as Carson Wentz had played, you think Jalen Hurts is the key to turn this season around for the Philadelphia Eagles? Hey, Carson Wentz has played poorly. Carson Wentz has played bad. But there's some reasons why, other than the fact that he's, you know, forcing the ball, mechanics are way off from listening to uh, Swagoo and Dan Orlovsky, you know, break it down and do all this kind of stuff. And they're talking about his leg is not bent properly and, You know, his footwork is horrible and all this kind of stuff. I've never played football in the NFL. I've never been a quarterback guru. I'm not a quarterback coach, so I'm not going to sit up there and argue these guys about, you know, the the mechanics or the fundamentals of playing quarterback at the highest level. I just got to take their word for it. And if they're showing me stuff in terms of why his passes aren't accurate or being intercepted or something like that, I'm just learning. I'm just educating myself on that. So, you know, all right. So... You know, at least those things are correctable. So that's my one takeaway from it. The fact that what Carson Wentz is doing is a correctable situation. I don't know what they're going to do about wide receiver. Zach Ertz, I don't know if he can get any better from the wide receiver position. A running back position, I don't know if there's going to be... Wilbert Montgomery isn't coming through that door, folks. So I don't don't know what's going to be happening with the Philadelphia Eagles. Uh, Doug Peterson, I I, see... I don't know how, he didn't lose his coaching abilities in a car crash. So, 
The same guy who won the Super Bowl for the Eagles is still the same guy coaching this team. So we'll, we'll see. We'll see. Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. The Tampa Tom Buccaneers bounce back to beat the Carolina Panthers 31-17. Better. Better performance. Was watching that on their, uh, watching some of that on the red zone. Better, but still far from what expectations are for this season. At least Bruce Arians isn't calling out Tom Brady this week. I mean, we're making progress. Nice job. Um, Tampa Tom, good. Don't say that he could get better. He wasn't horrible. He wasn't bad. He was good. He was just good. Nice. Very nice. Yeah, she's nice. She ain't sexy. She ain't modelish. She ain't Hallie. She ain't Jada Fire. She's nice. She's got a great personality. That's what Tom Brady was in terms of his performance. He was good. Didn't light the world on fire. Wasn't Tom Brady from 2009? He was good. 217 yards, one interception, one touchdown. All right. Leonard Fournette, hey, man, I talked about, you know, Ronald Jones might be the guy that as the season moves on, he would be the one getting the majority of the carries. Well, on Sunday, you know, Fournette ran for 103 yards on 12 carries. The defense played well, had five sacks while forcing four turnovers. The defense is good enough to where the expectations, even if the expectations are met at, say, 75%, because I think most Buccaneers fans think that because of the acquisition of Rod Gronkowski, the acquisition of Leonard Fournette, the, of course, the acquisition of the greatest quarterback who's arguably ever played, coming in with Mike Evans and Chris Godwin, who I don't think played on Sunday because, what, because of concussion, O.J. Howard and all the offensive weapons that they have around them, that people were thinking that, you know, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers were going to like the scoreboards a plenty might come in week 8, 9, 10, 12, 14. I don't know, but it's going to be a work in progress. It ain't going to happen overnight if it does happen. But if they can just get to, what, man, what, 70, 75% of what uh, expectations are, their defense is good enough to wear Tampa, especially if, shit, especially if the uh, New Orleans Saints continue to play like they're playing. What about that defense? I'll talk about the Saints defense against the Las Vegas Raiders on my next podcast. So, I mean, you know, hey, what's, what's going on with that? So if the if the Saints continue to play like they're playing, I mean, the Falcons are the Falcons, the Panthers are the Panthers, 11-5, and 12-4, 10-6 for Tampa? Offense playing at 75% expectation level with that defense? Possible, possible. Anything's possible! That's my Kevin Garnett. Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Let me end with this, because right now I'm only mainly talking football for this podcast. I want to defend Anthony Lynn, because he's getting killed from all directions. The head coach of the L.A. Chargers. Not going forward on fourth and one from their own 34-yard line in overtime against the Kansas City Defending champions instead of going for it on fourth and one to extend the drive. He instead opted to punt the ball away to Kansas City. The defending champs got the ball on their own 21. They only had to go 39 yards to kick a field goal. Now, can I at least say that the field goal was like from 58 yards? And it was 58 yards because of a five-yard false start penalty on the 53-yard kick. So, I mean, the guy kicked a... The guy lined up to kick a 53-yard field goal. 
and this stuff about I can't believe it, it was a huge mistake, they were playing well, this, that, and the other. Revisionist history. What happens if Anthony Lynn, what happens if the Chargers go out in fourth and one and get stopped? Then it's like the Kansas City defending champions don't need to move a yard and they kick the field goal. So basically people are talking about, oh man, as soon as they kick the ball, game over, game over. Well, it wasn't like Kansas City was scoring every time they touched the ball. It seemed that way in the second half as those guys started getting rolling. But uh, I mean, this was a situation where the Chargers defense was playing well. They were gassed at the end. I mean, Joey Bosa was sitting up there, you know, his tongue was hanging on the ground. But um, I don't think it was so egregious. You know, I mean, you can always look back and, you know, the analytics say that it was a wash, whether he would have gone for it or kick it or anything like that. But uh, I've seen a lot of football and there's been a lot more horrible calls than that. I'm, I'm not here to just say, you know, that it was the best move. It was the only move. And Lynn, after the game, was talking about, I want to give my defense a chance. And, you know, you hear this narrative about, you know, you don't look at the fourth and you don't look at the fourth and one. You look at it to win the game and all of this kind of nonsense. So, I mean, what the fuck does that mean? So, are you saying that consequently, every time you play the Kansas City defending champions with the uh, greatest quarterback that we got going right now, with the most prolific offense that we're going right now, head by, you know, headed by Eric Bieniemy? Thank you very much. You should have a head coaching job only because of the color of his skin that he doesn't have one. So, because of the situation that playing the Kansas City defending champions, that every team now with a fourth down should always go for it. Whether it be 4th and 18, 4th and 15, 4th and 6, 4th and 1, whether you're at midfield, whether you're at the 35-yard line, whether you're at your 10-yard line, whether you're at the Kansas City 47-yard line. So every time, because the Kansas City offense is so potent that whenever they get the ball, they're going to go down and score, that you should go ahead and you should go for it. To me, it doesn't make any sense. I would have done the same thing. Maybe that's one of the reasons why I'm so aghast by the criticism that Anthony Lynn was has been heaped upon by everybody. Rex Ryan, even his homeboy, is up there talking about what a dumb move that is. It's like, man, I, I, I was watching the game. I'm saying kick it. And, you know, the folks, do you go for it? Do you go for it? No, you don't go for it. Because if you miss it, that means if you don't make it, that means you lose the game. Well, it's, you know, it's fourth and one. Okay. Do I have Ezekiel Elliott in the, back, in the backfield? Do I have Patrick Mahomes under center? I mean, do I have a fantastic play caller in Kyle Shanahan as my offensive coordinator to make sure to, you know, do I have Cam Newton as my uh, quarterback? Justin Herbert played well, but he's still a rookie. It's okay. The second game of the season. Second game of the season. And maybe you could use that argument to say, well, that's the reason why you go for it. Because if you don't make it, you're going to lose the game anyway. So what the fuck? I just thought the chances were better that they kick the field goal or that they uh, kick it away and, um, you know, put their defense in the best position to uh, win the football game. So there you go, Mr. Anthony Lynn. You keep doing what you're doing, man. You keep doing what you're doing. <clears throat> All right, I'm done. I am out of here. Only a mi- only an hour and 45 minutes? What the fuck is going on here? I'm, I'm done. I'm going to... Uh, I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to finish watching this show with Kerry Champion. Oh, I must have to say before I get out of here. And no, don't worry. I'm not going to start rambling on to where it's going to be two hours and 45 minutes. Shut the fuck up. <laughs> I just want to say uh, congratulations to uh, Kerry Champion, or Kerry Champion and uh, Jamel Hill 
for the show that they have on. Those are two fantastic women. I tell you, man, you know, I've always said, you know, I'm one of the luckiest guys in the world because Marie Wallace was my mom. I mean, it's just, it was just a blessing. Wendell Wallace Sr. was my father. Marie Wallace was my mother. For me, I'm the luckiest motherfucker who's walking this planet. No one has done more to squash uh, the talent and the lessons taught more than me because my parents were awesome. My parents were great. And my parents were the role models to where I didn't need to go anywhere else. I didn't need to go down the street. I didn't need to go next door. I didn't need to go search for a teacher or a basketball coach or a social worker or a community advisor or a, or a pastor or anything like that. For me to uh, find the best role models that any person, black, white, Asian, Hispanic, Jew, anybody could have than Wendell and Marie Wallace. They were the best. They were the absolute best as people and parents. So for me, I didn't need that. But I'm taking a look at the TV right now as I'm doing this podcast. And I'm taking a look at the show, Carrie and Jamel Stick to Sports. And it's Carrie Champion and Jamel Hill. And I'm just thinking to myself, these two young ladies, and yes, they're young. These two young ladies, relatively speaking, I'm old. They're younger than me. So these two young ladies are, for black women, are so, I hate to, I hate to put that term role model. I hate, to, I hate to put that responsibility role model on someone like them. Because they're not fucking role models. Parents are role models. And if parents can't be fucking role models, it's not up to Jamel Hill and Carrie Champion and other black folks in our community to try to raise our kids. If daddy's in jail, mommy is doing drugs, and the brothers and sisters in the family and the aunts and uncles are running, running, a wild, running around in the streets being wild, it ain't up to Carrie Champion, it ain't up to Jamel Hill, it ain't up to Michelle Obama, it ain't up to any of those black female, strong, intelligent, beautiful women out there to raise our kids. I don't give a fuck where you're from. I don't care the fuck what environment you come from. Raise your fucking kids, parents. Don't leave it up to Jamel Hill. Don't leave it up to Carrie Champion. Don't leave it up to Michelle Obama. Don't leave it up to LeBron James. And the only reason why I'm saying that is, is that for those, because we live in a real world, for those who need that example of someone who's strong for a female growing up in difficult situations, who doesn't have a mother, who doesn't have a father, who's growing up in adverse situations, who have bad role models, who might take a look at certain people that this society puts in front of them the term to say, this is what a real black person is all about. This is, if you're really black, if you're true black, if you're down with black, if you're 100, this is how a black person looks and sounds. For those who have the disadvantage of having that, and you have these people that are put in front of them that ain't anything like that in terms of who you should be following, and you're looking for somebody, you need black girls out here who are looking for someone to emulate as far as intellect, as far as intelligence, as far as strength, 
as far as beauty, as far as self-awareness, as far as being strong in who they are. Carrie Champion and Jamel Hill are two folks, and they just came to my mind because I'm looking at the uh, television here. Those are two people for black girls out there who need role models because they don't have anybody else around them. Those are two to where, you know what, you want to try to emulate somebody? Look, for the black kids in the situation, I mean, we've got a lot of role models that we can look at. And unfortunately, we're looking at folks down the end of the street who ain't doing nothing with their lives in some of these communities. More than we're looking at the Barack Obamas of the world and saying, I could be more like him than I could be with some guy who's 36 years old still hanging out on the street corner blaming everybody for their woes in life. But for the black women out there, and I'm telling you, for these black girls out there who are striving, who are now at the age, who are now entering their teenage years or getting to the point where, you know what, time's running out in terms of you better think of something with what you want to do with your life and you better think about it fast because at 15, 16, 17, 21 years old comes around a lot sooner than you think. Then the responsibilities of becoming an adult are a lot quicker than what you realize. You better find yourself some more positive role models what you can emulate. And while there's Angela Rye and while there's, you know, uh, others who right now I can't think of at the top of my head. And I know once I'll be done with this podcast and I'm editing it and then I'm sleeping, I'll wake up at 4 o'clock in the morning and say, Oh shit, why didn't I say her? When I was speaking about great role models for black, for black girls to look up to. It happens. But, uh, you know, just the two as of right now that are crossing my mind. You, know, you have these WNBA uh, players like the Candace Parkers and everybody. These women are so intelligent. These women are so um, impressive of who they are. And I, I mean, you know, I'm watching them play basketball, I, I had no interest. But just to listen to the way they talk, their intelligence, their articulation, mixed in with their beauty. You know they ain't someone to be fucked with. You know they ain't going to be hanging around with some jackass who ain't, who ain't going nowhere. Who ain't doing nothing. Who ain't doing nothing but themselves. So I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm just happy to see in our quest, in our situation to move forward. I'm glad that TNT and other folks have given talented, beautiful, strong uh, black women like Jamel Hill and Carrie Champion to have their show. Because it's great. It's great. We need more. And like I said, I hate the word role model because Jamel Hill... Jamel Hill's married and she's got a she's got her life. You know, Carrie Champion, she's got her, you know, everyday routine that she needs to go to. She can't be worried about raising your kid or keeping your kid out of trouble or make sure your kid knows how to speak or making sure your kid learns proper etiquette or making sure your kid actually can pull his pants up, making sure your kid ain't smoking blunts 15 times a day, making sure your kids have dreams and goals and aspirations, making sure that your girls aren't trying to get themselves pregnant by the time they're 15, 16, 17 years old and then walk around the hallways of school with a baby stroller and that baby in that stroller, you know, like showing her off like, you know, you want her at some prize at a at a town talent show. Now you went to the county fair, you won yourself the strongest man contest and you got a baby as a prize. You know, so we need to have more role models as I mentioned before, like Jamel, Angela Rye and all them. Beautiful, wonderful, smart, talented people. All right, I'm out of here. 
We'd like to thank you for listening to this podcast. I'll be back in a couple of days talking about what's going down in the NBA playoffs, talking about the upcoming week for the NFL, the college football season. For real, is starting with the uh, SEC starting, so I'll get into a little bit of that. So a lot of good things on the docket for Wendell's World of Sports. You can check me out on my YouTube channel. Wendell Wallace, just go to YouTube, W-E-N-D-E-L-L, Wallace, W-A-L-L-A-C-E. You can check out my rants and raves in person. And again, I keep telling these beautiful ladies who keep asking me this question, no, that is not a younger picture of Denzel Washington. No, that's not Will Smith. No, that is not some GQ model. That's actually me. Yes, that is actually me. Jeez, I, I don't... Man, it's so hard to be... I mean, can't you ladies just kind of like look at me not as some sex object, please? It gets old. It gets old, really. You know, all of these beautiful women talking about you're gorgeous, you're wonderful, what are you doing tonight? Can I have your number? You want to swing by? Can I be your booty call? Can I be your side piece? Please, please, respect me as a man, okay? I'm not your boy toy. I'm not your sex object. Stop ogling me. Stop drooling with your eyeballs looking at me. God. Let me end my delusion. I want to thank everybody for listening to the program. Before I get into any more trouble, I'm going to end tonight with um, my favorite, my uh, one of the guys where when I finally go ahead and after I finish you know, being reunited with my father and hopefully by the time I reach heaven's gate be reunited with my mom and my dad and you know be introduced to my grandparents and you know say what's up to my uncle jonathan and vincent and some other of my uh, family members and you know all those type of things you know after i do all that i want to uh in heaven i after i get through with all of that because i'm going to be up there for eternity so i got time i'm going to go see a concert and i'm not i don't want to see tupac i might want to see biggie I want to see um, I want to see Gangstar. I want to see the Guru perform up there. But uh, I also want to see. I don't know what kind of billing they'll have in heaven. I don't know if it's going to be Chuck Berry, Aretha Franklin, The Four Tops, uh, David Ruffin, Sam Cooke, Otis Redding. But any any billing that Otis Redding is going to be on up in heaven, I want to go see that man perform. And I don't know what kind of songs he's going to be having. That he, I don't know how many songs he's wrote since he's been up in heaven since 1967. But I'm quite sure, man, that he's moving, he's grooving. Him and Sam Cooke, I'm quite sure. Maybe they got together and did a duo. Um, you know, I want to be in the same role of the concert, watching it with Malcolm X and Martin Luther King. Maybe talk about them, talk to them about what's going on in the world today. But as I leave you tonight... I want to play you a little Dock of the Bay, the alternative, the original version. This was take two. The seagulls and the water and everything like that, that was put in by Steve Proper the day after they got back from the funeral when Otis Redding died. Atlantic Records called and said, hey, when we know that Otis is dead, sorry, too bad, sucks. But, uh, you know, we need the uh, single from, uh, you know, we need that single from his last recording. And Cropper was like, really? Like, the man's not even, man's just barely in the ground, and already you're talking about, you know, business. But uh, they got together. He put in the jingle. He went down to the drugstore, got some stuff, the jingles and everything, put it into the song. So the song that you hear 
that's being that's played mostly of Dock of the Bay by Otis Redding. That was something to where, um, that was something to where, that was produced after he was dead. The um, takes, the alternative takes, take one, take two. I think he did like three or four takes. Normally Otis did one or two takes, and he was like, "Good, that's good enough for me. Let's do it." I know try a little tenderness. That was really important to him, so he did like five or six takes of those. But normally. Otis Redding was the just the guy who did one or two takes, and we'll just go from there because soulful, feeling the soul, being the man. But I think he did a couple of takes on Dog of the Bay because he was so moved listening to the Beatles Sgt. Pepper uh, album that uh, he wanted to do something similar. So uh, this is what he came up with, sitting at the Dog of the Bay. My man, my legend, my hero, my fave, the great, the wonderful, the legendary, the awesome Otis Redding, special dedication to my beautiful, wonderful, fantastic, loving, attractive, intelligent goddaughter, Sydney Davis. One to love you more than you'll ever know. My favorite human being under the age of 50. Y'all be good. Y'all be good to each other. Listen, learn, learn, listen. Shut up and listen and learn. And for Otis Redding, sitting at the dock of the bay, <laughs> when it comes to true soulful greatness, listen and learn. Sitting in the morning sun I'll be sitting when the evening comes Watching the ships roll in Then I'll watch them roll away again I'm just sitting Dock of the bay, watching the tide roll away. I'm sitting on the dock of the bay, wasting time. I left my home in Georgia and I headed for the Frisco Bay. Cause I've got nothing to live for. Look like nothing's gonna come my way So I'm just gonna sit on the dock of the bay Watching the tide roll away I'm sitting on the dock of the bay Wasting time Look like nothing's gonna change Everything seems to stay the same I can't do what ten people tell me to do So I guess I'll remain the same Sitting here resting my bones And this loneliness won't leave me alone Listen, for two thousand miles I roam Just to make this dark my home now I'm just sitting on the dock of the bay Watching the tides roll away Ooh, I'm sitting on the dock of the bay I'm wasting time